This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to Origin Story. In each episode, we take a word, idea or figure from history, explain its origins and talk about how it influences political discourse today. I'm Dorian Linsky, author of 33 Revolutions Per Minute and the Ministry of Truth. My name is Ian Dunt. I'm a columnist with the Eye newspaper and I'm the author of How Westminster Works and Why It Doesn't. This week, you rejoin us for Zionism Part 2. We left it in 1939 when there had been a promise in the form of the Balfour Declaration in 1917. And then over the following 20 years, a series of compromises that the Zionist movement was forced to make, not rewarded with uh, compromises on the Arab side. So they they were essentially stuck. And they, they end up in 1939 on the eve of war in this position of sort of maximum peril for Jews in Europe with this infamous white paper, which is read as a sort of complete betrayal. And the white paper is basically restricting immigration and land purchases. So the British are going to allow another 75,000 immigrants over the next five years. And after that, all further immigration is only with the consent of the Arabs. I mean, the thing with the British position in this, throughout most of that interwar period, is like, they don't really want the problem. They right. don't really oh, no. know what to do with it. They're just like, oh, it's just very messy and a terrible sort of mess over there. And there are competing claims, which are both entirely legitimate. The Arab claim is for self-determination, which is not an arguable thing. I mean, they are not having their right self-determination recognized. And the Zionist claim is that we need somewhere to be safe. And if you cannot see that now in the late 30s in Europe, you will never be able to see it. And there are attempts to evacuate Jews from Europe. In 1936, Jabotinsky has a plan to evacuate one and a half million Jews to Palestine, but this is vetoed by the British. And so there's a, the urgency becomes much greater. I mean, Britain basically closes the door, right? So you've got 61,800 Jewish immigrants to Palestine in 1935. It's down to 29,700 the year after that. By 1937, it's just 10,500. The British are sending out these sort of military boats mm. to prevent these small boats. And I think the echoes of our debate now are quite important to prevent the small boats from landing in Palestine. Yeah. And at the same time, of course, well, they're not allowing many Jewish refugees into Britain or America and in the infamous Evian conference where basically nobody agrees to, to welcome Jewish refugees. So this gives a real existential urgency and moral power to Zionism. You know, to think back to what Herzl was sort of saying right at the beginning of this story, it's not just what the Nazis are doing. It's not just the Holocaust. It's the way that ostensibly friendly countries are just not willing to lift a finger to help the Jews. Great countries, big countries, small countries, they're all the same. None of them will help. And they will, in fact, sabotage your efforts to surreptitiously get Jews out of Europe. There's a final uh, Zionist conference in August 1939. I mean, this is literally less than a week before Germany invades Poland. 
Weitzman gives the final address. He says, if, as I hope, we are spared in life and work continues, who knows, perhaps a new light will shine on us from the thick, bleak gloom. The remnant shall work on, fight on, live on until the dawn of better days. And then he goes to his rival, Ben-Gurion, no love lost between these two, and just embraces him and almost, you know, onlookers sort of say, embraces him as if he's just, he just can't let go. Yeah. Because this is it, like the curtains are coming down. And in fact, the, the delegates trying to get home suddenly find they're going back through a war zone. These are the final days. During the war, support for Zionism is growing because of the persecution, even when the details of the Holocaust are not yet known. In the Biltmore Conference in New York in 1942, there is a, a statement expressing wish for a Jewish commonwealth. Conference demands that the gates of Palestine be opened. Then and only then will the age-old wrong to the Jewish people be righted. So this is a real sort of, you know, peak for, for American Zionism. In March 1943, Weitzman says this. When the historian of the future assembles the bleak record of our days, he will find two things unbelievable. First, the crime itself. Second, the reaction of the world to that crime. He will be puzzled by the apathy of the civilized world in the face of this immense systematic carnage of human beings. I want to say something here about one of the most sort of controversial areas, which is the relationship between Zionism and Nazi Germany. Now, Hitler was wholly opposed to Jewish homeland, of course. He attacked Zionism in Mein Kampf, continues to make statements about how it's absolutely an, an intolerable idea. Some Zionists made deals to enable Jews to keep their property and their lives. Now, there's a 1984 book by a Jewish Trotskyite, Lenny Brenner, called Zionism in the Age of Dictators. And his kind of accuracy is challenged. There's quite a lot of bits where he'll take the beginning of a quote, but not the end of the quote, uh -huh. which makes clear the, uh, you know, what was actually being said. So it's a very controversial book. But he, he sort of sculpts these cases into a, an argument that Hitler was, in fact, sympathetic to Zionism and that Zionism as a movement, not individuals, were, were actively collaborating. He calls Zionists the ideological jackals of Nazism. It's quite Jesus astonishing. Christ, what a thing to say. Now, this is a narrative that really began in Russia. And we we're going to talk about the post-war period later. But, but basically, Russia turns on Israel in a very, very big way. And so this sort of becomes part of particularly like Trotskyite discourse in the West. Now, the Brenner book was the inspiration for Ken Livingston saying he actually cited this book, said Hitler was, do you remember this? Hitler was supporting Zionism before he went mad and ended up killing six million Jews. Oh, fuck Jews. yeah, I'd forgotten about that quote and I was happier when I had done so. And of course, Hitler was not supporting Zionism. There was a, <laughs> uh, agreement which would enable some Jewish assets to be preserved, but at no point was Hitler a supporter of Zionism. Also, I'd love to know when Hitler's sane period was. Before he went mad. I mean, <laughs> yikes. Anyway, so... It was also the Brenner book, the inspiration for the controversial play Perdition, written by Jim Allen, directed by Ken Loach, staged in 1987 uh, until protests um, shut it down. Writer Jim Allen claimed Hitler was fond of the Zionists. They were good Jews prepared to fight for land. Oh. This is um, not true. So the play is about a Hungarian Jew called Rudolf Kastner, who made a deal to get some Jews to safety. But it is alleged that he certainly left the Mulkwilden behind and there are actually allegations that he sort of, you know, sped their path to the concentration camps. Now, I've read criticisms of Brenner and they don't defend Kastner. 
They then go, oh, he did the right thing. Mm. But they're saying, but he was not a spokesperson for Zionism. He was not a typical character, which is why this story is so, you know, shocking. But Jim Allen said, without any undue humility, I'm saying that this is the most lethal attack on Zionism ever written because it touches the heart of the most abiding myth of modern history, the Holocaust. Because it says quite plainly that privileged Jewish leaders collaborated in the extermination of their own kind in order to help bring about a Zionist state, Israel, a state which is itself racist. Oh, fuck. So he takes this, you know, very specific, very disturbing story and he just goes... Not Kastner. He doesn't mention Kastner. He goes, this is what Zionism was doing. Mm -hmm. It was basically the Holocaust was the price it was willing to pay mm. for Homeland, which is and it's basically an attempt to discredit Zionism at the point of its greatest moral legitimacy mm. and sort of separate it from the good Jews to be like, oh, well, it's not, I'm not talking Jews, but I'm saying the Zionists themselves were sort of sacrificing Jews for the Homeland. Yeah. And that this book by Brenner is such a kind of key part in some of the the, the ideas of anti-Zionism now. But what is not sort of talked about, so much as, for example, that the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, Hajj Amin al-Husseini, who after the war becomes leader of the Palestine People's Party, you know, visits Berlin, stays there to record anti-Semitic broadcasts. He said, Islam and National Socialism are close to each other in the struggle against Judaism. Mm -hmm. He was a virulent anti-Semite and Nazi collaborator. Now, does that mean that all Palestinians were Nazi collaborators? Or all Arab nationalists. Of all Arab nationalists. And he goes, no, it means, it means that person was. <laughs> and so I feel like, you know, if you're being fair, you can certainly point to certain individuals and go, well, they made deal with the devil. Mm -hmm. You know, they made disgraceful choices. They have to live with that as it is. Kastner ended up being disgraced, lived in Israel, but was disgraced and sort of, you know, faded out and, and died without ever being kind of rehabilitated. But to use that as an attack on Zionism at that particular point, yes, to say that they were collaborating with the people who were trying to kill them, I find deeply troubling. So Alex Rivchin in Zionism, The Concise History, writes, The effect of the Holocaust was to definitively prove the central thesis of Zionism. The notion that assimilation, integration and loyalty would be the salvation of the Jews of Europe was proved a farce. That's certainly how it played out among Jews, but also among the wider world. The moral status of Zionism was transformed. It's funny, you know, because there's this kind of sick irony to it all, which is that Zionism was supposed to be based on the mass immigration of European Jews to Palestine. And on a practical basis, it falls apart completely because there are no more European Jews to do it. I mean, out of every sort of seven Jews living in Europe during the war, six had been killed by the time it was over. So actually, the thing that was always relied on, the mass immigration no longer is really feasible. Also, its historic mission was precisely to prevent this kind of thing from being able to happen. So there's just the failure yeah. there of, well, it happened, right? Zionism, it's sort of, with a different perspective, it's, it's like the history of the failure of Zionism. Because ultimately, when the Holocaust comes, the work of the Zionists in the decades leading up to that had not been sufficient 
in order to to, to protect the Jews who who are well, traced. Well, they, they fail practically, but it's not the failure of the idea. No, no, no. It's no confirmation I get, I get of the idea. But that's where you're left, right? So you know, you've you've had. So for instance, if you look at sort of Jabotinsky, sort of sort of saying, "Well, look, we need to do this now. Like there is no time to waste. We have to be going on with yeah. this." Like they're in a state of complete catastrophe, and yet the moral case for what they have put forward. And really, even the logical case following from the premises established, you know, decades earlier, now appears just completely unarguable. Well, as we said, Britain did not cover itself in glory no. with this. And in fact, the, the real sort of political imperative is coming from the Truman administration in the US. So the, the real sort of political energy for this is coming from the US. They commissioned uh, the Harrison Report by Earl Harrison on the condition of Jews in displaced persons camps. By the end of 1947, there were still over 200,000 Jews in these camps. Some of them, for a long time after the war, still had to wear their camp uniforms, or even some of them had to wear abandoned SS uniforms because they simply weren't being supplied. So Holocaust survivors walking around in in the uniforms of like commandants. Jesus Christ. So he called on the US to resume the Palestine plan. The UK resisted. Foreign Secretary Ernest Bevan, who was anti-Semitic. I agree. Said that they shouldn't jump the queue. Weizmann responded that they had been at the front of the queue at the gates of Auschwitz. Yeah. And it wasn't just his personal anti-Semitism. They were influenced by the fact that you know, there was a lot of oil being produced in the, the Arab states. So there was an economic motive and also more justified fears of instability. They continued to maintain after the war immigra- the immigration restrictions from the white paper. And Truman was furious with them. You know, while perhaps not the most, with, with all these people, they've, they've all these other political considerations. I'm not saying Truman was this kind of uh, moral white knight here. But he, there was huge tension between Truman and the Attlee government over this. There was. We can mention just the fact that, that Truman vacillated sort of from one position to another, and he was being advised in certain ways. He was an, an inconsistent ally, I think, to the Zionists in that period, and they're often very frustrated with him. <laughs> Nevertheless, he was more consistent than the British, right. you know, whose only consistency really was just hoping the problem would go away. And what's making things kind of worse is the rise of militancy in Palestine. The mainstream defense force was the Haganah. Jabotinsky's followers, he died in 1940, his followers formed the Ergun, which is more militant. And the radical splinter of the Ergun was called the Stern Gang. In 1944, the Stern Gang assassinated Lord Moyne, the British minister in Cairo. Absolute widespread horror. Churchill says, if our dreams of Zionism are to end in the smoke of assassins' pistols and our labours for its future to produce only a new set of gangsters worthy of Nazi Germany, it's quite a thing to say. Many like myself will have to reconsider the position we've maintained so consistently and so long in the past. And Weizmann says, we came to Palestine to build, not to destroy. Terror distorts the essence of Zionism. It insults our history. It mocks the ideals for which a Jewish society must stand. It sullies our banner. It compromises our appeal to the world's liberal conscience. And actually, incidentally, there, there is some defense of, of British performance here in some of the literature. Because, I mean, the, the, the attacks are pretty severe. Well, the, I mean, the bombing of the King David Hotel. Right. There's, there's 100 people that were killed in that bombing. Brits, Jews and Arabs. 
And yet most of the stuff, there are attacks are saying, well, the Brits are like the Gestapo of, you know, detaining people. And absolutely, they did do some of that. However, generally speaking, most of the stuff I've read is just like, well, actually, you know, this was probably as sort of moderate and restrained a response from the Brits as could be hoped for, given the intensity of that scenario well, on the ground. Ben-Gurion calls the Ergen the enemy of the Jewish people. Right. I mean, really could not be clearer. Sometimes yeah. I, I look at political debates now and I go, why don't people draw red lines so much? Why is it that people are allowed to? so often forgive really extreme behavior from people because they think, well, it's probably going to help my cause. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you really have people like Ben-Gurion going, no, this, yeah. th this is horrifying. There is such, there is real kind of no love lost whatsoever. And we should be clear as well that Jabotinsky is in an earlier period in the sort of 30s, when, when these kind of tactics first emerged, throwing bombs into Arab markets, Arab bus stops, he sort of complains. He's like, well, can't you give them warning before you mm -hmm. do it? But it's all very prevaricating. There's a real moral abyss there, and he is not sturdy enough to lift himself out of it. So in 1947, Atlee and Bevan, they are obviously sick of this. <laughs> They're under pressure from the Truman administration, from Zionists on the Labour left. <laughs> you know, this is perhaps a strange thing to think now, but the Labour left was ardently pro-Zionist mm -hmm. at that point. Mm -hmm. They're really not very sympathetic. They decide to wash their hands of the issue by turning over the mandate to the United Nations. And Bevan tells the House of Commons, Balfour is dead. This leads us to the UN vote on yeah. the Jewish homeland. So the UN sets up this committee to sort of investigate what's going on. It comes up with a report that has two opinions, a minority opinion and a majority opinion. And I think that's fascinating because it's a real kind of sliding doors. History could have gone two ways at this point. The minority opinion is a federation with common citizenship. The majority opinion is for partition. Hmm. Jewish state and Arab state and Jerusalem under an international trusteeship, which kind of is it's kind of where things are going. Like, you know, this is India, Pakistan, you know, th th yes. this is sort of where we are at this point. And we've been, you know, and obviously the Brits were trying various partition plans. Yeah, yeah. I mean, everyone was very pro-partition yeah, at the time. Yeah. And there was a very long tradition in Zionism, which was precisely against exactly that kind of thing. I mean, it was represented sort of quite early on by a sort of movement called Brit Shalom. And it's for binationalism. And in fact, this was very common. Even Jabotinsky would talk about binationalism at certain points. The assumption was that you would have a framework that it would involve national rights for Arab Palestinians as well as Jews. So essentially, you're sort of imagining something a bit like Belgium, really, you know, and that this was a viable way. And not only was it viable, but it was the, the way of securing the ultimate triumph of Zionism. Right. Of shoring it up against his enemies. This is almost the exact opposite approach to the Iron Wall Jabotinsky mm, mm. one. And one of the main proponents of this would be Judah Magnus. There were always lots of objections to this position. I mean, the chief objection for most people was the Jews will never be safe unless they're a majority. Because no matter what constitutional protections you put in place, mm. you know, people can always vote against them if there's a majority sort of Arab population. If they want to have a pogrom there, nothing can stop them. Those were all logically sound objections to what he said. But his argument was, it's easy to find the consequences of binationalism, of essentially what this is, is the one state solution. Yeah. Right. But also there are consequences to partition. Now he is still around making the case to the, to the UN commission. And he says to them very clearly, partition is going to create a war. And he gets accorded an assimilationist. He gets attacked extensively by Zionism. This is never a hugely popular opinion within Zionism. And yet 
he has a real steel to him of against the hardened Jewish position and against a complete lack of interest of any cooperation from the Arab side in order to try and make this like a viable proposal. Yeah. And so when it comes to finally that final report, it remains the minority opinion as it is put down and is the path that is not taken. Now, the existence of Israel really comes down to Stalin. <laughs> but, you know, in, it's in, 100% true. in this, folks, because he decides that left-wing Jews, which is what Zionists are at that point, will be easier to deal with in the post-war, what's about to become the Cold War world, than the Arab states. And he swings the Eastern Bloc behind it and all sort of Soviet-aligned countries. And also you've got the US and most of the Commonwealth supporting it. UK abstains. Mm. Brilliant. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's just the absolute not my problem of, of the British approach here. They just want out of it. Without the backing of the communist world, this vote is not won. Mm. It's mm. A, you know, it's celebrated by, you know, by Zionists and Jews, Jews around the world. I want to quote from the father of the writer, Amos Oz, who said to uh, Amos that night, from the moment we have our own state, you will never be bullied just because you're a Jew and because Jews are so-and-sos. Not that, never again. From tonight, that's finished here forever. It shows like how powerful that was two years after the war. The Arab states obviously vote against and promise to destroy the Jewish state. Syrian president says we shall eradicate Zionism. You have dancing on the streets of Tel Aviv until the morning, the traffic stops in Tel Aviv and in Jerusalem. And the next day, Jews in all parts of the country are attacked and the rioting breaks out. Now, the state doesn't even have a name until May 14th, 1948, the eve of independence, which is, I had to stop myself when I'm talking <laughs> pre-1948 about Israel. It's mm. not, it's the Jewish state. Ben-Gurion, who becomes the first PM, rejects Judea and Judea and Samaria as too religious um, and chooses Israel. He is so secular that the Declaration of Independence doesn't even feature God. Mm. He's moderate, he's secular, he rejects the orthodox, he rejects the revisionists, he rejects the Marxists. And it might be a good time to point out that for many religious Jews, Zionism was always a problem. Oh, yeah. Because it, it was defining the Jew in a sort of political nation sense. And, you know, for a lot of, especially sort of orthodox rabbis, they're like, well, no, that's not what it means. What it means is religion. Right? Yeah, well, her, and Herzl <laughs> wasn't observant. Mm -hmm. You know, so it got, most of the leaders were not, they were certainly not orthodox, but they weren't religiously observant at all. Yeah, yeah. Now, straight away, obviously, the, the neighboring Arab states attack. We cannot unpack all of this. There's violence on both sides. To, to the Palestinian Arabs, this is the Nakba, the catastrophe, which involves 700,000 Arabs being driven out of Palestine and a large number of Jews who are living in Arab states coming in. And most importantly, because, you know, it's, it's, it's not a long initial war, but the crucial decision isn't, you know, this happens in war. People flee in various areas. The crucial decision comes afterwards when it's decided you can't come back. Yeah. You know, and that really solidifies part of the sort of poison, really, and toxicity that we see in terms So the Nakbar is there, is that, is the Palestinians' primal, yeah. primal trauma. Yeah. But in 1948, Israel is one of the most popular countries in the world. Huh. Like, perhaps the only country supported by both sides of the Cold War. Huh. The Communist Party of the USA calls Israel an organic part of the world struggle for peace and democracy. Wow. Now, in the next and final part, I suppose we're going to talk about how that changed. <laughs> 
Now's the time in the show where I thank our Patreon supporters who keep the train on the tracks. Thank you this week to Irene, Aidan Donnelly, James Smith, David Housham, and Paul Harris. Thank you so much for your support. So really for some of the first 20 years, you know, it's Ben-Gurion's Israel, even when he's no longer prime minister. It's that attempt as sort of the, the moderate secular state. Um, the revisionists are still sort of being kept in a box, essentially. He's very left-wing, obviously, but he is proudly anti-Stalinist and was very made well, absolutely certain that sort of Stalinists didn't have prominent positions. Which, of course, causes a, a causes a big problem because then Russia, I mean, which is going through a phase of anti-Semitism, a turn towards anti-Semitism with like the doctor's plot and mm, Stalin's mm. final year. And then Russia, the Soviet Union, becomes a kind of a sort of factory for international anti-Semitism. Turns on Israel in a very bad way. So you just realise that, again, this small window of time when Israel was possible because Stalin basically miscalculated and thought, oh, well, these guys will be on our side in the Cold War. And you realise how much all this whole story is buffeted by military interests. The First World War, the Second World War, the Cold War, the interests of the great powers. So the big turn begins with the Six-Day War in 1967, Israel on one side, Egypt, Syria, and Jordan on the other. As the name suggests, very short. At the end of which, Israel captures the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, the Golan Heights, and the Sinai Peninsula. Now, originally, there really wasn't a plan to keep them. Mm. Some people wanted to, but that was not the, the mainstream view. The, the idea was to trade them for peace and not settle them. The only legal exception was military outposts were allowed. And so what happened was settlers, largely the revisionist wing, they sort of exploited this loophole by building settlements around military outposts, you know, for the families of the soldiers. Or whatever. So it was establishing the facts on the ground to make it harder to return yeah, the territory, yeah. which, you know, see to this day, it becomes the more people live there, the harder it is to return them. And then global politics are changing at the same time. Russia has become very anti-Israel. Palestine becomes the driving cause for the global left. And this is when you really start seeing it associated with racism and imperialism. There's there's a lot of statements. The one I'm going to quote is from Yasser Arafat of the PLO. In 1969, he says, we wish to liberate the Jews from Zionism. (laughs) So there's that separation (laughs) of like, it's the ideology, it's the Israel we oppose, it's not the Jewish people. In 1974, he addresses the UN and says, Zionism is an ideology that is imperialist, colonialist, racist. It is profoundly reactionary and discriminatory, and it is united with anti-Semitism in its retrograde tenets and is, when all is said and done, another side of the same coin, Mm. which is that argument that we heard earlier. We do distinguish between Judaism and Zionism. While we maintain our opposition to the colonialist Zionist movement, we respect the Jewish faith. Mm. Anyway, that's what he said. (laughs) (laughs) And this becomes the orthodox position, I suppose, on the global left. I mean, already in developing countries were were more critical, but it becomes the sort of position of the, the Western left. It's not unreasonable for there to be a fundamental change in attitudes on the basis of 67. Yeah. Right? Because pre-67 and post-67 are very, very different status quos. So even sort of people, uh, sort of Zionist sort of thinkers and academics in Zionism who are very, very critical of partition as a way of proceeding would say the 48 map, that 
kind of could work. You know what I mean? Like you've got a viable Palestinian state there. Like the bits yeah. of land connect to one another. They're contiguous, right? Mm. You know, you, you, can, you can see how that might work. By the time you get to 67, it's like that can't now. Right. So, I mean, you've lost the viability of anything that looked even remotely like a sort of equitable sort of ending to the situation. So it's not irrational that the debate changes. But of course, these quite toxic and quite irrational ideas start emerging and the language becomes much more vicious and thoughtless. Zionism becomes more taboo on the left. Mm. Once you've been described as racist and an imperialist... Obviously, you know, and there are people like comparing it to the struggle of uh, North Vietnam, the Palestinian mm-hmm, struggle to North mm-hmm. Vietnam. It was part of this much bigger picture. And there's sort of a, a feedback loop, therefore, what's actually happening in Israel. So within Israel, Labour, which has been running the country since its inception, starts losing ground. The revisionist party, Likud, which is the sort of successor to Jabotinsky's party, gets more popular, especially after the Yom Kippur War in 1973. Then in 75, there's UN Resolution 3379, which is sort of the exact negative image of 1947. (laughs) Because now the Eastern Bloc has switched sides and the Eastern Bloc and developing world win a vote, which declares Zionism is a form of racism and discrimination. Mm. American representative uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan is absolutely horrified, storms out, just thinks this is a, you know, this is a betrayal. And it's on this basis that some British student unions expelled Jewish societies. Jesus. Because they were Zionist and therefore racist and imperialist. Jesus. So this is sort of really sort of the origins of sort of left-wing anti-Zionism. Which is the political landscape that we see now. Yeah. We've learned is that people under attack, and I don't think you have to look at you know, even nations like this, you can just look at the way that people behave in politics, on social media Mm. and so on, is that when you're under attack, you don't think maybe they have a point. You don't (laughs) tend to compromise if you don't have to. You actually harden. So in 77, and for various internal reasons, not just this, but certainly I think the sense of global hostility helps with this. Mirahim Begin becomes the first Likud prime minister now, he was the leader of the Ergen who masterminded the assassination of Lord Moyne. Yeah, Jesus so, Christ. Apparently, Margaret Thatcher, who was a child, was really scarred by this as a news story, uh-huh. was absolutely horrified that she had to deal with right. what she saw as a, as, as a terrorist. What a terrorist. Then yeah. Begin appeals to the religious right in Israel by subsidizing Orthodox schools and referring to the West Bank as Judea and Samaria. He says, what occupied territories? They are liberated territories. They are part, an integral part of the land of Israel. And he is moving out of that secular logic, political logic, and making a religious claim that this is like, this is our land from the Bible, which is always part of Zionism, but not being voiced in that way by the prime minister. And also not voiced that way by Jabotinsky. You know, who was the sort of intellectual antecedent and, and sort of right. origin of this stuff. You know, he was a secularist just like the rest of them. This was not the kind of language that he spoke. And also, as a reminder, he was far more moderate in what he saw as an eventual outcome. You know, he thought you need the Iron Wall to show the Arabs that Zionism is real and it's going to happen. But once they accept it, we go with, with a rotating presidency and prime ministership. You have a kind of form of binationalism that's operating there. It was not... Even in his case, and he was considered incredibly extreme at the time, he was not envisaging the kind of thing that's being outlined here. So this really affects the direction of Zionism, the sort of the victory. I mean, there's always a kind of, it's, there's never a total victory. It's always mm. both sides, but certainly the revisionists, you know, they're in the driving seat now. 
and begins seeks allies in the American evangelical movement, Christians who saw Israel as an essential precondition of the end of days. Yeah. And I've read uh, for my book oh my lots God. of um, <laughs> lots of books of sort of modern millenarian prophecy, mm. and let them go one generation after the you know the return to the holy land you know the end of days will begin so that was why there were loads of predictions that armageddon was going to happen in 1988 40 years after the foundation do you ever feel that when we do these histories we're sort of working our way back through humankind's evolution so that things just get stupider and stupider the closer we get to the present day because <laughs> It sort of starts intellectually, you know, stimulating right, right. And, and then it just ends up with a bunch of people babbling about we the must, Bible. We in must the preserve the site of Armageddon. Yeah, exactly. And so he makes a calculation and it's probably a rational political calculation, you know, that a lot of younger diaspora Jews were becoming much more critical of mm. Israel, much less ardently Zionist. And there was this huge untapped you know, army of supporters on the Christian right, many of whom were in fact anti-Semitic and essentially saw Israel <laughs> as just like a vessel for Christianity. So Jerry Falwell, the notorious preacher and founder of the Moral Majority, like infamous mm -hmm. bigot, yeah. becomes the first non-Jewish recipient of the Vladimir Jabotinsky Award Oh my for Zionist God. excellence. Oh my God. And is given a Learjet oh, no. by the Israeli government. <laughs> Oh, my dear Christ. Now, if Ben-Gurion had been alive <laughs> and he died in 73, it, it seems to me, and this is what the historians suggest, he'd have been absolutely horrified that he was trying to build a, a secular, liberal yeah. Israel, which would at some point be able to sort of make peace with its yeah. with its neighbours. He still had, he had traces of that idea, not quite the kind of full-on Herzl utopia, but still traces of this idea of being like a, you know, a sort of, a moral sort of exemplar that yeah. this is really important yeah. to him. And this is the sort of beginning of, Likud has not been in power solidly since then, but it's been in power mm. a, a lot and like Ariel Sharon and Netanyahu. And Israel has also became uh, later on in the 90s more right-wing due to demographics because you had much higher birth rates among Orthodox Jews and also huge amounts of immigration from the former Soviet Union yeah, yeah, after yeah, 91. Yeah. And the Russians have sort of always been more hardline. Mm. I mean, you know, Jabotinsky, you know, yeah, yeah. from that part of the world, they've always been more hardline. So even though it's becoming less popular in the diaspora, and I'm not saying that support for the existence of Israel sure, is, sure. is unpopular in the diaspora, but certainly there was a lot more criticism among, among Jews. But inside the country, the balance is sort of tipped and there's still many liberal and left-wing Israelis and it's still like, a, you know, it's fiercely contested. Yeah. But what we've been talking about is that for decade after decade, Zionism was predominantly on the left to some degree and that that affected its reception by people elsewhere in the world, hence the initial Soviet support, and that the left-right dynamic therefore leads us to this to this point where when people say talk about zionism or people say that they are anti-zionist are they anti revisionist revisionist <laughs> yeah. are they are they anti likud you know do they want withdrawal from the occupied territories or are they anti the existence of israel it's sort of are you uh, opposing the post 67 
situation? Or are you opposing the post-48 situation? Which are two very, very different things because, because you know, it's very hard to abolish a nation because people, people live there. I do think it has utility. I think that we're just, you know, it has been a victim of people who do not have a decent incentive to the manner in which they use it. Sometimes as a cloak for what I think is anti-Semitism, and sometimes just as something that they haven't properly bothered to read about or understand in any way and just lashing out and using it wherever. But ultimately, if you if you restrict it to the sort of old idea, the oldest idea in it of a homeland for the Jews, for reasons of safety and identity, one or the other, or maybe both, that in and of itself is a really provocative and radical and interesting idea that you can legitimately agree with or disagree with, right? It's funny, like, from a sort of instinctively liberal perspective, there's all sorts of problems with it. Even though Zionism itself is is very liberal throughout almost all of its history, certainly the pre-sort of um, establishment of the state. Because, you know, that classic thing of, oh, well, there's a problem when you've got a state defined by race or religion. But then when you've lived through, you know, even just take what we've lived through, right? Like even just take those Corbyn years and just the way that this... Just out of nowhere, it's so complacent before it. You know, if you had asked me, I'd have been like, oh, oh, yeah. there's no way anti-Semitism comes back in this country. I'd have been saying exactly what they were saying in Europe in the late half of the 19th century. You know, oh, well, we've got all these new rights. This is just not something that happens. It's this sort of medievalist, old, sort of archaic, mm. obscure nonsense. And then suddenly it just spasms out. Just kind of, come, he's just like, Christ, where did this come from? Right? Suddenly it's everywhere. And that... That moral response that you get to that, which would have been the same, I think, you know, for if you happen to be in Paris during Dreyfus, is a meaningful political project based on a repeated phenomenon that we see. And that, to me, if you keep Zionism to that, that is what that means. Then there's another debate about all the various ways in which Zionism can be implemented. Does it have to be a state? Does it not? Could it be by nationalists? Can it be sort of a one-country solution, a one-state solution, a two-state solution? How do you proceed on the basis of what happened in 67? Could 48 work? That's all another debate. But actually, there is a meaning to the term, and it, it is a really kind of vivid and important moral conversation around it once it's restricted to that meaning. I was reading um, about perdition. I gave a quote from Michael Billington, who was the Guardian's theatre critic for a very long time. And he went, perdition is vehemently anti-Zionist without being anti-Semitic. Mm-hmm. You could be anti-Zionist in 1905 and not only not be anti-Semitic, but be in the mainstream of Jewish public opinion. Now I don't, I don't know. I think it's is off. It, it's so often used as a as a cover, and it troubles me the way that even thinking back. And I'm somebody who has. You know, my grandfather was a Holocaust survivor. He lived in Israel for a while, and even then, I had little, maybe a little understanding of it. I certainly went through a phase where I used Zionist to mean basically Likud. Mm-hmm. The Zionists mm-hmm. are the kind of. They're like the bad ones. And I think on both sides, there is this tendency to sort of go, well, these are the good Jews and these are the bad Jews. Mm -hmm. Because the anti-Zionists go, well, the Zionists are the bad Jews. And then, of course, on the Zionist side, I think it's those Jews that are insufficiently supportive of Zionism. Well, well, they're they're the bad ones. And that makes me really uneasy because if you look back at this entire history, a lot of it is, for decades, there was a huge debate 
within the international Jewish community. And you don't have to sort of take sides. You know, when Louis Brandeis is clashing with Chaim Weizmann, so you don't have to go, well, this is the good guy and this is the bad guy. <laughs> it's a legitimate it's a legitimate disagreement. And the whole thing has been something. And, you know, an, an, an argument and contestation is a huge part of Jewish tradition. So it very much worries me that, that, that Zionism has just become really sort of oblivious to its history, has just become the word for like the ones it's okay to attack as if there is, as if they're completely yes, different yes, people. Yes, yes. And there's absolutely no possibility that it might bleed into anti-Semitism if you use sort of yeah, certain, yeah. certain tropes. So it's the reason why I wanted to do, the reason why I wanted to do this episode, because I do think it's a word that you, you, you need to know a bit more about the history. I think I feel the sort of the same, you know, like I would use it, I mean, I would have for periods just said, no, obviously I'm against Zionism because of that liberal thing. I just mm. won't sign up to a state that, you know, it's based on religion or race. But then when you read the history, and I think this, this occurred to me, yes, it was during the Corbyn stuff, but also it was reading sort of about, you know, when I was writing How to Be a Liberal and reading about, you know, Life of Isaiah Berlin, you know, reading about the Holocaust, reading about Dreyfus, that you just think, okay, fine, that's a principle. But there is this really long history of something profoundly terrible and specific with anti-Semitism. Stephen Bellow at the end of his book, and it's, it's, it's sort of desperately sad. He goes that Israel has become the main focus of anti-Semitism instead of being the means to eradicating it is, from Herzl's perspective, an ironic proof of Zionism's central failure, the failure to reconcile the Jewish people to the rest of the world community. And I don't think he's sort of saying failure as in like, oh, it was easy to get this right mm -hmm. and you got it wrong. More the shortfall between the the ideals, not just of Herzl, but of many people after him, that they imagined a much better situation than the one that the one that we see now. Yeah, I mean, to go from what he imagined to where we are now is a tragedy. There's no way around it. And tragedies are based on situations where no one is necessarily wrong where people are acting from a completely justifiable position, as I think you see in this case with the argument for safety on one hand and self-determination on the other. When I said like that Isaiah Berlin was in my head all the way through this stuff, you know, Isaiah Berlin's philosophy is of unavoidable human tragedy, right? So like imagine that you are like a young man in Ukraine right now and your dad gets sick and he needs someone to care for him, but you want to go fight on the front line. Isaiah Berlin's message on this kind of stuff is, well, this is tragedy. Don't never believe anyone that tells you that there is a right thing to do and a, you know, a one correct way to behave. Human life and politics is full of unavoidable tragedy and all we can do is blunt the edges rather than sharpen them. We have to accept that there are no happy endings. There is no right solution. There is no utopia. And I think that to me was like the prism throughout this story of just like, it's that. It is unavoidable tragedy from people who are not wishing for a bad thing and actually are completely justifiable in their position. So it's a tragedy in the outcome. And I think it's a tragedy in terms of just the, the contorted, horrible mess that people without a, necessarily a bad intention have managed to get themselves into. It really is a really tragic story and a really, really depressing one.
Hello, once again, thank you to our Patreon providers. Every time I consume food or enjoy energy in my home, I presume that I'm doing so <laughs> with the vital financial sustenance that has been provided to me by this program. So thank you in particular to Andy Scott, Richard Allen, Becky McMurdo, Hans Forhog, and Imogen Robertson. Well, I hope you've enjoyed our two-parter on Zionism and found it helpful. And, uh, you know, if you do have if you do have thoughts on it, you can get in touch with us uh, via social media or via the Patreon page, where you can also choose to back us and support us in all the fascinating but very time-consuming work. You can also follow us on Twitter at Origin Storycast. Uh, you can find the reading list of everything we consulted for these episodes on the show notes. And you can book a ticket for our second ever live show at 21 Soho on the 11th of July. It's, it's a lot to do. I've basically given you like an afternoon's work. <laughs> you gave me homework. Yeah. That's great. That's so generous of you. Oh, and just let me uh, quickly say thank you to the people that helped me with the research for this subject. They are Jonathan Friedland, Wahil Walak of SOAS, Gil Troy of McGill University, and Ari Dubnov of George Washington University. So thank you very much to all of them. Guys, next week is our final episode of the season and it is on the far more serious far more grave topic of elon musk we'll see you then origin story was written and presented by dorian linsky and ian dunt with music and audio production by me jade bailey and the lead producer was anne-marie luff the group editor was Andrew Harrison, with art direction by James Parrott and Misha Welsh. Origin Story is a Podmasters production. Mm-hmm.